The first act of this episode of One Foot in the Black includes a first-hand account of the campfire in Paradise, California. While it doesn't include disturbing descriptions, it does talk about one person's evacuation experience. We recognize that for many survivors of wildfires, and there are a lot of us these days, this might be difficult to listen to. Feel free to skip ahead and pick back up with us at 11 minutes. We drove up here for the first time to look at houses. It was a 20 minute drive and all of a sudden I'm in the environment that I love the most since I was a little kid. Spent a ton of time in the Sierras, Lassen National Forest, in the Siskiyous, just realized that, oh my gosh, we're looking at houses and surrounded by tall pine trees and there are canyons and rivers five minutes away. This is amazing. I can't believe you can live in a place like this and also have a job close by. For Charles Brooks, living in the Wildland Urban Interface provided an affordable and beautiful place to live. But living on the edge of the wild can change your life in an instant. My name is Charles Brooks. I'm the executive director of the Rebuild Paradise Foundation and moved to Paradise in 2005. My wife and I met shortly after graduating college. We were looking for a place to live on our own and wanted to buy a house. We couldn't afford anything in Chico, which is where we were both working at the time. So it was not a hard decision to decide to move here. We bought our first little fixer-upper house that we could barely afford. It was built in the 1960s. Paradise had this like swath of homes that were built in the 60s and 70s. And most of them were two bedroom, one bath, two bedroom, one and a half bath, really catered towards like the retirement community. It was a place a lot of people were moving from the Bay Area to have an affordable retirement where they had hospitals close by, all sorts of services, but really could have a little piece of land too. The Wildland Urban Interface, or the WUI, is a frontier dividing urban development, like houses, towns, and communities, from undeveloped land. In the West, it's places like Paradise, which is situated in the Sierra foothills on the edge of National Forest. Our first house was on a third of an acre, and it was just this great spot at night. You could look up and see an amazing amount of stars, just really idyllic. And you had neighbors that would put your trash cans in if you were gone on vacation, all the things. So we lived in that house for three years and we decided to, to uh, get into a bigger house and we started our family and we were fixing up this house. And that was like our whole goal, fix up a house, live in it, kids graduate high school and then figure out what we're gonna do. And so our first son was born in the house that we lost in the fire. On Thursday, November 8th, 2018, in a remote stretch of canyon in Butte County, a faulty electric transmission line started a fire. Driven by powerful east winds, it raced downhill through the built landscape of communities in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. Never did I think I would hit a point where I would go, it's time to leave right now. The night before the, the campfire, it was windy and it was warm and it was dry in November. And normally by this point, we oh, it seemed like we always had rain on Halloween, the kids trick-or-treating, you're always getting downpoured on. There was at least one or two rainstorms by Halloween. This year, we'd had one rain and I think it was like in September or something. 
And I got up in that morning to, with two buddies and we hiked two days a week. We get up and we were on the trail at 5 a.m. And we're hiking in the Feather River Canyon, which is where the fire entered paradise. And we were all commenting about, wow, it was really windy last night. It's so warm out. This is terrible fire weather. Like the pine needle dropped the night before. I'd blown off our roof two days earlier. And when I woke up in the morning, I was looking with my headlamp. The whole roof was thatched. It looked like something out of the tropics because it's just the pine needle dump. And everywhere you looked, the curbs and gutters were full of pine needles from so much wind before. When vegetation is that dry, it can act like a catalyst for fire spread. Additionally, there hadn't been fire on the ground in that area in over a decade, leaving the region with a significant amount of material to fuel a fire. My wife goes to Chico for a, a meeting and it's my day to take the kids to school. And it's about 7.30 and my, my oldest son comes upstairs and he says, Dad, I smell smoke. And I was like, oh, I, I don't smell smoke, but okay. And so we're going along and we have a skylight in our house and I just noticed it was starting to get darker. And I was like, that's really weird. There was not a cloud in sight this morning. And so I turned on the weather app and over the origin of the fire, I noticed that it looked like there were thunderclouds and thunderstorms based on the radar imagery. And that, was, I, that really threw me off guard. So I immediately turned on the scanner and was listening to the communications with the fire department. And it was about five minutes that I started hearing the resource requests from the incident commander over in Concow when the fire was starting to move this direction. And I thought, oh my God, this is bad. This is really bad. And it's windy out. And then the sky continues to get darker and darker. And I thought, huh. So I'm getting the kids ready for school. We've had fires before in the area. Trust in the system. Everything's, I've got enough knowledge. Okay, let's get the kids ready for school. I'm walking out to the car to put them in the school and the phone rings. It's an automated system that the school can send out a message to all parents. And it said, school's been closed because of a fire in the area. Little did I know that the woman who went to open up school at 7.45 in the morning when the first kids could show up, she saw flames at the backside of campus. Had I not gotten that message and dropped my kids off at school, I never would have been able to get back to them. We got up into Center Paradise and I looked around and it was not quite as dark as nighttime, but there was just giant pieces of ash and, and stuff flying through the air and the visibility was maybe a half mile. And I turned around and said, nope, we're going home. And at that point, my kids start asking questions. We get home and I, I see my neighbor out in the front yard. I send my kids inside and I said, hey, this is looking really bad. I think we all should think about getting out of here. My neighbor said, ah, I just talked to my buddy. He's a he's in the fire department. He said, we'll be fine. It's way over in Concow. The reports hadn't come in that it was in paradise yet. It already had been in paradise for a while. I turned around to leave talking to my neighbor and I started to hear what sounded like rain hitting the rooftop of cars. And what it was, it was embers falling out of the sky and then a burnt stick that was probably four or five inches long and half inch in diameter smoking fell in front of my foot. My kid comes out of the house and said, dad, it's raining, what's going on? And I was like, oh, that's not rain, everybody inside. And we basically spent three minutes packing up our bags, uh, one bag for my two boys and uh, one bag for my wife and I, and grabbed the dog. And I was like, we're not hanging out for this. This is really bad. And that's when I could hear this low rumble off in the distance. It sounded like thunder that had no end. And it was this thing that something in your DNA just goes, that's not right. And if my kids weren't there looking back on it now, I probably would have stayed a little while longer and tried to grab a few more things out of the house. But I had two two tiny humans who had their own they're counting on me for their safety so we got in the car and i hollered at my neighbors I'm like 
you need to get out of here. I spent 10 minutes trying to convince an elderly neighbor to leave with me and she wouldn't go. And finally, I, I said, I've got to leave with my kids. You need to get out and you need to leave. And so we got out to the main road. Traffic was backing up and we could see spot fire starting to show up in backyards. And it's looking like somebody has a burn pile going in their backyard. The next thing that's oh, their whole backyard's on fire. Fire trucks come racing by and you're thinking they're gonna go put out that fire. Nope, not at all. We got into major gridlock, took some side streets, took us about an hour and a half to get to Chico and my neighbors who left 15 minutes behind me, it took them almost six hours to get out. I'm very fortunate, but we were three people out of the 50,000 people that, that were displaced by the fire that day. And my kids did not have to experience major burnovers that so many people did. And we had spot fires around us. We had parts of town on fire that we just couldn't, you couldn't even conceptualize that this community that you'd driven past so many times was on fire. In less than 24 hours, the campfire had swept through the town of Paradise and nearby communities. 18,000 structures were destroyed, most of which were homes, along with five public schools, several churches, numerous small businesses, and part of the local hospital. Most of this destruction happened within the first four hours of the fire, when Paradise lost an estimated 95% of its buildings. My wife and I talked about it and we committed before we knew much that, that we wanted to rebuild and that's uh, where we ended up today. And we just moved home three weeks ago to our house that was rebuilt and it's, uh, it's amazing being home. Absolutely amazing being home. And uh, the stars are brighter than I ever remembered. Every day I wake up and I want to see this community come back. I want to see our kids playing soccer on a Saturday morning on the soccer fields again. I want to see kids going to the donut shop and the, the parades, the, all the things that make this town truly special. Charles has been instrumental in the rebuilding of his community. In the short-term aftermath of the campfire, Charles and a group of motivated Butte County residents, business owners, educators, and civic leaders quickly became involved in rebuild efforts. Today, Charles and the staff at Rebuild Paradise Foundation work diligently to provide the resources and advocacy that supports the recovery of Butte County. After the smoke settles, communities are looking for new ways to rebuild, looking for ways to be resilient in the face of climate change and wildfire. But we need to rethink how and where we build our communities, especially those that overlap with fire-prone landscapes. In this episode of One Foot in the Black, we examine communities at risk. We dive into the wildland-urban interface and look at ways to protect our homes, our communities, and each other. And we ask the questions, how can we better plan and prepare our communities for wildfire and climate change, while also learning how to build back better when we are impacted by wildfire. I'm Jessica Klinke, and we'll be right back with more One Foot in the Black. Hey there, Jessica again, producer of One Foot in the Black. This podcast is one of the many ways the Klamath Siskiyou Wildland Center engages in the issues of fire and climate. As a nonprofit advocacy organization protecting the wild places of Southern Oregon and Northern California, 
KS Wild is dedicated to bringing you science-based information on issues impacting our forests, waters, wildlife, and climate. And we depend on the generous support of people like you to accomplish this meaningful work. If you'd like to learn more about our programs or how you can become a sustaining member, visit kswild.org. Thanks. Now back to One Foot in the Black. There is a phrase that we hear a lot now throughout the West. Don't let our town be the next paradise. But there are countless communities that live in the wildland urban interface and that are facing threats of catastrophic fire every year. I'm Alexi Lavecchio. And I'm Joseph Fail. The campfire really highlighted the issue of communities being built in fire-prone landscapes, right on the edge of fire country and the human footprint. It also raises the question, what makes one community have higher fire risk than another? Janet Lancaster knows firsthand the answer to this question. I'm uh, Janet Lancaster, co-founder of Fire Smart Merlin and a board member of the Southern Oregon Forest Restoration Collaborative and live here in Northern Josephine County in Merlin. Honestly, Fire Smart Merlin came out of my uh, panic when I learned about the huge wildfire risk that this area was facing and it continues to face. Forest Service published a report along with a company called Pyrologics that looked at communities in Washington State and Oregon most at risk of loss due to wildfire. And Merlin was number one on that list. So what makes a community at risk to wildfire, in my mind, has to do with the fuels and to some degree the climate. And specifically, there's this concept, it's not a concept, it's an actual term a wildland urban interface or the WUI that describes the type of area most at risk of wildfire. By definition an interface is where two things meet, two items meet. And in the WUI or in the wildland urban interface, that interface is between residential areas and wildland and as I said fuel. So over time more development has taken place further into wildland or wooded areas. Also, areas with hot, dry climates are most at risk to wildfire, and climate change has exacerbated the impact on wildfire, primarily from lower than average rainfall and higher, hotter than average temperatures. So this makes the fire seasons longer, and they dry out vegetation. So it, I think it has to do with where people live. Do you live in an area? where there's a lot of fuel, i.e. woods, and do you live in a hot, dry area? If you're living there, you're living in a community that's at risk of wildfire. A community's proximity to a forested area, the type of vegetation the surrounding area is composed of, and the topography, how flat or steep the surrounding terrain is, all factor into wildfire risk for a community. For example, a home that is built in a canyon surrounded by forested hills with dry vegetation has a higher risk of wildfire. In a sense, we have ignored this issue for decades. We are choosing to place ourselves in the way of fire. We're building more and more homes in areas where fires historically have burned and will most likely burn again. Between 1990 and 2015, one study found that 32 million new homes were built in fire-prone areas. 32 million new homes. 
Some people move to be closer to nature or because housing costs are lower than living in the city. Having more structures in harm's way increases not only the damage wildfires inflict, but also the risk that they will break out in the first place, as many damaging fires start from accidental humid ignitions or even arson. Since 2005, more than 89,000 structures have been destroyed by wildfires, with the most damaging wildfire seasons being in recent years. Many communities are looking for ways to build back better, more fire resistant. The town of Paradise did an exhaustive a set of research and brought forth a number of potential ordinances to town council to vote on that were, that were seen both scientifically and also recommended changes to our code, to our building code, to help make the community safer. And one of those that passed was the first five feet. Any new home can't have anything combustible connected to the home within the first five feet. So if you've got a wooden fence, a metal gate that connects to it, you can't have combustible materials up against the home. That's a pretty easy thing to enforce and, and to build back. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It, it really doesn't cost any more money. It's just a smart way of living. In recent years, California has adopted rules requiring new homes in high-risk fire areas to meet minimum standards on fire-resistant construction. But many Western states don't even have that, and it is up to local communities to adopt their own codes. Chris Chambers, the Wildfire Division's Chief of Ashland Fire and Rescue, explains what Ashland, Oregon is doing. So Ashland has gone through the building code process. We still have one more adoption to do. So that what it involves is declaring an entire area as a wildfire hazard zone. And it becomes an overlay that you put into your planning system that requires certain things to happen when development takes place, or maybe in the case now, rebuilding takes place. So that, that can govern how you landscape around homes. It can govern the building and the building materials of the home including fences, decks, outbuildings, which all are part of how uh, susceptible a particular lot is to fire. So Ashland went down that road. It took several years to get to the point where we adopted the entire city as a wildfire hazard zone. And then we started applying those codes to new development in October of 2018. Experts say states and municipalities could impose tighter restrictions on future development to ensure that communities are better protected against wildfire when it arrives. But building codes for new construction only go so far because they don't address the millions of homes already built. Looking back at the campfire, Cal Fire found that over half of the 350 single family homes built to California's new fire building codes escape damage. But of the 12,000 homes built before then, only 18% were undamaged. Retrofitting millions of existing homes can be expensive, and many people don't think wildfire risk is something that will happen to them until it does. Luckily, local communities are getting creative and offering incentive programs where professionals can visit your home and identify steps to reduce wildfire risk. Communities are becoming firewise which encourages local solutions for fire safety by involving homeowners and taking individual responsibility for preparing their homes from the risk of wildfire. But the best thing to do is to talk to your neighbors, in my view, given the current environment and the lack of funds, talk to your neighbors about helping one another. It only takes three or four people that are willing to help others in your neighborhood to get started. 
And there is a program called FireWise. It's a national program that comes through the National Fire Protection Association. And it is all about homeowners helping one another to make their homes FireWise and get a FireWise certification. Because you could have a neighborhood of 10 neighbors that are all doing an excellent job of maintaining their properties, keeping the vegetation down, keeping stuff away from their home. But you could have one neighbor that is not participating in that for a number of reasons. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they don't believe in it. But that one home, the heat generated by that one home in another ember-driven fire could be enough to catch the homes next to it on fire. We saw that a lot. The, the heat generated from one house will ignite another house. And so that is where you count on your jurisdiction, your town, your city, your county to enforce those minimum guidelines of vegetation and five feet of clearance around a home minimum of five feet, because those are gonna have the most dramatic effect. Defensible space is the buffer you create between a building on your property and the vegetation or any wildland area that surrounds it. This space is needed to slow or stop the spread of wildfire, and it helps protect your home from catching fire. Defensible space, it is the buffer that people create between their home or other outbuildings on their properties and the grass, trees, shrubs, and any wildland that surround it. And we're thinking about those grass, the trees, the shrub as fuel. This space around the home is what's needed to slow or stop the spread of wildfire. And we wanna protect the home from igniting or catching fire, either from direct contact with flames or radiant heat from an approaching fire. When you become a FireWise certified neighborhood, the homes that have gone through that process are local firefighters have that information during an emergency, which homes have defensible space. So when they're looking at maps of and strategizing about where to go, they're more likely going to go into subdivisions and neighborhoods that have homes that they know have a very good likelihood of, of them being able to save. So defensible space is a really important concept for people to understand and to undertake, really. So defensible space is also important in terms of protecting our firefighters, right? It's not just about us, but it's about our firefighters that are, we may need to come and defend your home. Another responsibility landowners in the wildland urban interface have is to retrofit their home with materials that are fire resistant. This is called home hardening. This includes things like installing a metal roof, clearing all combustibles from the roof, gutters, and eaves, and installing multi-paned windows. If you want to take a look at hardening your home, start at the top of your house and work your way down. So you're going to make sure that your roof is cleared of all combustibles, all kind of organic matter, pine needles, oak leaves, whatever kind of leaves. Clean the gutters, the gables where they join, the eaves. Make sure that the, your window screens do not have holes in them because embers can get in through there. You want to check the seals on your windows, doors, and you want to make sure you don't have any gaps in your siding. Again, thinking about embers for, for your home, making repairs to siding if that's needed. 
But if you want to take bigger steps, you can do things like fire resistant roofing. You can box in the eaves. You could put in dual pane windows. They make fiber cement siding. If, you, if your house needs new siding, you may want to consider putting in cement siding. If residents are doing their best to prepare their homes and property for fires, following all the rules, taking all the safety precautions, and still having their homes burned down, what's next? How else can we prepare or plan our communities to live with fire? We have started to see some innovative building technologies that are taking hold. And one of the challenges there was initially, is there the workforce here and the knowledge and the materials availability to be able to, to utilize those materials in, in construction? You could have the greatest product, but if you don't have the construction know-how and the workforce that knows how to build with that material and it's not regionally available, then it's gonna be cost prohibitive for most people. So right now we're seeing insulated concrete form homes taking shape. Quite a few of those going up. We're starting to see a technology called AAC, aerated autoclave concrete. Those homes are starting to take off. We have uh, some metal home, metal framed homes. So metal studs, metal roof, or that kind of thing are starting to take off. People who are taking that extra step. But we're seeing that the AAC and also the insulated concrete forms are reaching a point in, in efficiency now and availability that they're competing with, uh, with traditional stick-built homes. But everybody's doing hardy panel. Everybody's doing stucco. You're seeing very few plywood-sided homes. And if they are, they're going to be painted. And so that, that actually has an effect if you've got a freshly painted home. Of course, each community has different needs and different levels of resources. But maybe the key to solving the wildfire problem is to develop local solutions that work for a given location and topography and a given community. Fire isn't something we can stop completely, but treating wildfire like a, the natural hazard it is will allow us to focus on planning and preparing our communities better. With hotter and drier weather on the way, forest fires will be part of our lives for the foreseeable future. We need a new way to live with them, not just better management, but an entirely different approach to where and how we live in fire-prone areas. more about ways to protect you, your family, and your community during fire season? Check out KS Wild's Forest and Fire Toolkit. This one-stop shop of resources has most of what you need to know about living rurally and in the forests of the Klamath-Siskiyou region. Check it out and download a free copy at kswild.org. Communities in other fire-prone regions of the U.S. are already making smart choices in building and planning for fire and climate. In the southeastern United States, where there are a significant number of homes in the fire-prone landscape of the wild and urban interface, the region uses prescribed fire across millions of acres of land each year to reduce the amount of vegetation that is left to burn. This results in fewer homes burning down in wildfires. In Colorado, Communities are building fire breaks and green belts, a fire-resistant green grass that completely surround the community, creating the equivalent of a trench that fire can't easily cross. And in Taos Pueblo, New Mexico, 
The tradition of building homes out of clay, sand, grass, and straw protects the structures from catching fire, even when built on the edges of fire-prone forests. Salas Pueblo has been continuously occupied, they know this from archaeologists, for 1,100 years, the town. There's adobe structures and there's gardens all around the town that are irrigated uh, where they grow corn and beans and some other stuff. And because of the, the non-flammable nature of their construction, the adobe the construction, with just a few wooden roof beams and stuff, and the fact that they did both irrigated, irrigated uh, crops and also grazing right around the town r- r- made it so that they've never had a problem with fire. Even though they're in the mixed conifer, they got a beautiful mixed conifer forest going up that Rio Ensabato, up the watershed. Rich Fairbanks is a fire professional with over 40 years of experience in fire suppression and forest management. He actively manages his 20-acre property in the Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon to prepare for wildfire. In early May of 2021, I attended a prescribed burn hosted by Rich and Terry Fairbanks. It was put together for the Applegate community by the Rogue Valley Prescribed Burn Association. Because of the growing concern of the potential for a wildfire to burn down people's houses and landowners wanting to steward their properties, more people want to put fire safely back on their land. Terry and I are the property owner, so we don't know some of you, but we're really glad you came. And we hope that you'll get involved in the Prescribed Burn Association. The day started at 11 a.m., with 25 interested community members gathered around for a brief explanation of how a prescribed burn works and the planning and resources that go into making it safe. Good morning, everybody. I'm Aaron Krikova. For those of you who don't know me, thank you all very much for coming out. I see some faces from last time. That means you guys had fun, and it's good to see a lot of new faces as well. It's good to know that so many people are really excited. The Rogue Valley Prescribed Burn Association is a partnership forum to conduct prescribed burns on private lands. You'll hear Aaron refer to it as a a PBA. So a little bit more about what a PBA is. PBA is a group of community members working together to share tools, knowledge, and volunteer time to accomplish prescribed burns on private lands. This group can include landowners, fire districts, the local extension office, nonprofits, and any other community members who are interested in supporting prescribed burning. Controlled burning is the most efficient ecological and economical tool for land management. It's good for fuel reduction, invasive species abatement, nutrient cycling, and native plant restoration. And we need to put this tool back in the landowner's toolboxes because it's been out for too long. One of the best ways to restore our landscapes and build resiliency is to use more fire. This is not new. Indigenous people in our region and in places around the world have used fire as a tool for millennia. For more information on cultural fire use, you can go back and listen to episode two of our podcast. And I know you're all excited, but I wanna, I'm want to. i not saying that we should go and light our properties on fire when you go home today. I want to be very clear about that. A lot of time and effort has gone into getting this property to the point where we can apply fire to it. Rich has been doing fuel reduction work and small prescribed burns on this property for almost 20 years. There is a lot that goes into planning a prescribed burn. You need to assess your property to understand how fire is going to behave on the landscape. Your plan needs to involve fire professionals. All the fire practitioners here are volunteering their time and equipment. They like to practice their skills, they like to share their knowledge, and they know that if there's ever a fire in this area, it'll be safer and they'll be safer if they have to respond to a fire here. The prescription that day was to burn one and a half acres. 
Leaders of the burn develop a plan which includes a qualified burn boss who conducts the operation. There are multiple fire engines, wildland firefighters, and forest restoration experts. Keeping the project small enabled the community to get a feel for how a burn is conducted while leaving plenty of time to answer questions and discuss the process. Prescribed burn associations allow landowners to accomplish larger scale restoration and land management projects than would be possible as individuals. This is a neighbors helping neighbors model, making this work more affordable by people volunteering their time, skills, and equipment. So it's very cost efficient working together as volunteers and working together as a community. It's akin to barn raisings or haying back in the old days in rural areas. The Rogue Valley PBA is the first one in Oregon, but they are a common model throughout the Midwest and the Southeast, where they have been operating successfully for decades. The burn took around one and a half hours to complete. Volunteers learn how to use drip torches, maintain a small burn, and create small fuel breaks. Some crew members remained on site till the fire died down and make sure it was safe to leave. Many people left with a better understanding of prescribed burning and experience working together as a community to accomplish good work on the land. Building a relationship with fire means getting more people comfortable with using fire. As a community, we need to look at prescribed burns as tools for protecting our homes and for forest health and resiliency. Recent wildfires have left people feeling scared, with entire communities destroyed, loved ones lost, and trauma setting in. The smoke from prescribed fires can be triggering for survivors of wildfire, bringing back feelings of fear and panic. Yet if we're going to protect our communities in the long run, we're going to need to learn to live with fire. On the next episode of One Foot in the Black, we look at climate change and how it is impacting the size and severity of wildfires in the West. We speak to firefighters and scientists to understand how fire will behave in our hotter, drier world. And we look at what we need to do to adapt our communities and land management policies toward climate-smart conservation. One Foot in the Black is a production of the Klamath-Siskiyou Wildland Center. This episode was written by Joseph Bale, Alexi Lavecchio, and Jessica Klinke. Editing and sound design by Jessica Klinke. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. A big thank you to our guests featured in this episode. Charles Brooks from Rebuild Paradise Foundation, Janet Lancaster from FireSmart Merlin, Chris Chambers, Ashland District Wildland Fire Chief, Wildland Fire Practitioner Rich Fairbanks, and Aaron Krikova from the Rogue Valley Prescribed Burn Association. Links and resources on topics covered in this episode, including more on defensible space and home hardening, are available at kswild.org podcast. 
please take a minute to like, subscribe, and review One Foot in the Black on your preferred podcast platform. It helps people find our show and makes us feel good about doing it.